Hello and welcome to College Admissions with Mark and Anna. Each week we talk about different college admissions topics and answer those tough questions you may be dealing with concerning getting into the college of your choice. We know how stressful this process can be, so each episode we try to make it easier to navigate. Now, here are your hosts, Anna Wren and Mark Hofer. Hi, everyone. Welcome to College Admissions Podcast with your hosts, Anna Wren and Mark Hofer. It's so good to talk to you today, Mark. Good to talk with you, Anna. We uh, are going to talk about going to college in Europe today, which is something we haven't done before. And we are lucky enough to have Sandy Firth from World Student Support in Golden, Colorado. Sandy? Thank you for having me. I'm humbled to be here. Um, I'm, as they both said, I'm Sandy Firth. I'm in Golden, Colorado, and um, I'm an IECA and HECA member. I'm a certified educational planner, and I started my journey when my family and I returned from living overseas in the early 2000s. And it all started when my colleagues from overseas started reaching out and asking me what to do with this student, what to do with that student. And it actually started when students from overseas came back to the U.S. and were to put them in the U.S. Um, And then students from the U.S., wanted to go overseas to schools. And it started mostly in the UK. um, And then it spread from there. Um, And I think because we had lived, our last posting was in the UK, teaching in international schools. And we had taught at the International School of Kuala Lumpur and the American School in Japan. So my family and I traveled worldwide and have a few countries under our belts that we had traveled to and and lived. So it, it just basically came naturally to me and to world student support. And with all of the connections that I've made with other IECs, um, it's, that's how it all started. Very so good. I, so I'm, I'm curious, since you've been, you've worked with students, as you say, coming to the U.S. and from U.S. students going to Europe, are there particular areas that uh, you find students in the U.S. are, they gravitate to? They're the most interested in finding Um, colleges that are in particular countries or areas? You know, the biggest draw lately has been the UK. Hmm. Um, And for a long time, I had a lot of students from all over the world coming to the US or coming, going to the UK. This year, it's been the US students going to the UK. Yeah. And of course, this year is a horse of a different color, as we all know. (laughs) What do you feel like is driving that in terms of students preferring the UK over other countries? I think for students who speak English, it's an English-speaking platform, even though there are cultural aspects that you have to get used to in the UK. I think that that's something that... um, that I do address to families and I do address to students. And um, when I've done follow-ups with parents, they do realize, yeah, there are a few things we have to get used to and that my student has to get used to, my student has to get used to when they, leave, when they go. Oh, so I'm curious, how many, what, what's the percentage of students who want to study abroad that you work with who have never actually been to the area they're considering? Oh, most of my students have gone, and if I've had one or two students, particularly if I start with them early, they will go in the summer to a summer, some sort of summer program. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I would always wonder once they get over there if they've never been, and they go, this isn't Kansas. And yeah. so I'm, I'm yeah. always wondering about that. And you brought up the language thing, which does make sense for UK and kind of drove my options for where I studied abroad back in college, too, is like, do I speak the language? But how, what, how many students do you, would you say, like, speak another language so that they can apply to other schools in other countries? Most of the students that I 
worked with, and here's here's a real misconception, and I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, is they think that if they have received a high score on their AP exam, that they're fluent in a language, and they <laughs> had a really good command, but they're not really fluent. Um, and, and, and I just want to make that clear. They may be able to understand, but they may not be able to speak. And, and they don't have a command of the idioms in the language. And I think that that's really important to understand. And, uh, you know, and I'm one to talk. I don't speak a second language. And even though we lived in, in Japan and we lived in Malaysia, we were not fluent speakers. We, in, in particularly in Japan, we bungled our way through. I could get into a taxi and I could get a taxi home. Um, I could read basic signage. It was kind of shameful. And, I, and, and I'll admit it, I'm, I'm ashamed that I did not do better than I did. Um, but, you know, they have to understand that. Um, I actually and, tell students, when, you know, when, when, they, when they say they are fluent in, in another language, but they actually haven't lived in a country that speaks that language, and I tell them, I'm actually very excited for you because you're going to learn to become culturally fluent, which is actually more important than language fluent. And that one will lead to the other, but they are, they are very different kinds of fluency. You are, you are spot on. So when we were living in London, um, one of the first things that happened was our furnace went out. And I went over to the rental agency and I said, and this is Friday at 4.45 p.m., 5 o'clock, boom, everything shuts down. Um, and I went over to the rental agent and I said, wow, our furnace went out and it was, it was cold. It was cold. It was damp. It was rainy. And I said, can you get somebody over? Um, I, I think we can make it through tonight, but I don't think, you know, it's going to be really cold. It might snow. We'll send somebody over um, sometime on Monday. I said, well, wait a minute. I'm working. I can't take the day off. You'll have to be home. Uh, no, no, no. I've got to work. And fortunately for me, their repair person was standing right there. And, uh, you know, I had words with this rental agent. I walked out, the, out of the door. I was in tears. I had two young kids at the time. And the repair person followed me out. He said, I'll be over first thing in the morning. <laughs> it was just by sheer luck. And I don't know what I would have done. But that was just a cultural lesson, whereas in... Malaysia, somebody would have been over right then and there. And, you know, it, there is just, there are just a lot of little cultural things that you just pick up, even if you're in an English speaking country. So speaking of, of different cultures, there's also, and as an academic and educational researcher and classroom teacher, I'm always, I'm always excited to find out about different ways of approaching education. So how do you explore or how do you uh, discuss difference in educational philosophy um, between the UK and the US because I've had students, uh, engineering students who have gone to the, you know, say they've gone to Cambridge to study engineering and then they come back and they go, it's a totally different way of approaching education, especially for the sciences. So how do you discuss that with students who are thinking that they're headed towards Europe? Okay. It, well, first of all, the students, when, they, when they're going to Europe and when they're going to the UK, they have to know what they want to study. They're not going to get the liberal arts education. That's for starters. They have to be completely, I don't want to say completely independent. Um, the UK has gotten exponentially better in helping kids guide their path. Um, 10 years ago, five years ago, I probably would have discouraged a kid with learning issues from going to the UK, um, but they've, they've gotten much better with supporting kids with learning issues. Um, and, and I give a lot of credit to the, um, dis, the British Dyslexia Association for that. They've done a fabulous job um, supporting those kids. These kids, have to really want to study that particular major. Not that they're going to go into that major. They may not. Um, 
we have a little flat in London and our neighbors next door to us, um, one was at Cambridge educated, the other was Oxford educated. Neither of them are in a profession in their majors, um, which is very interesting. I mean, one is, I think she's she's a banker and the other is a CEO for a major makeup company. Um, I think one studied history, the other studied science, um, was in the sciences. Is that pretty common in, in Europe that, uh, Europeans, much like the U S um, I mean, less than 20% of people actually work in the area that they have their degree in. So is that common in Europe as well? I think it might be, I couldn't put a specific answer on that. One of our really good friends, um, both of her daughters, neither of them are stud- are, are majoring or, or have a position in their majors. Um, you know, and one of the students I worked with who um, studied econ at uh, Durham, he was a student, um, he was an international baccalaureate student here at um, one of our local high schools. He's not studying econ. He came back and he is doing a law degree now somewhere, I think somewhere in Spain, actually. Um, <laughs> well, he must have really gotten that bug for Europe. He went back for law school. <laughs> he, he, he did go back and, and he was kind of a conundrum kid. So you brought up a few good points. I was just curious. So is there a, a recommended time in which people should start preparing if they want to study in Europe? Um, and if so, what, what skills should they have or how should they be preparing? Okay. If you're going to go to one of the schools in Europe, particularly the UK, I really like to get these students early. Um, what is early? Just early. so our listeners know. Okay. Seventh grade. <laughs> I get you as a sophomore. I really like to plan out, particularly with our college board and these um, tests being canceled, and we don't know what the test mm-hmm. path is going to be. I really like for those AP courses to be completed junior year because those AP courses. Um, they're looking at these AP courses, uh, particularly if you're looking at those high profile schools, fours and fives are really important. Some of these schools in the UK are waiving the SATs and the ACTs if they, these kids can't get tested. So it's really important to get those under your belt so you don't have to wait until senior year and get that um, conditional acceptance. I was. I just got off of a webinar for the schools in Prague, and in Prague, the universities they just want your high school transcript. They don't need the SATs or ACTs or the IB. It's a much different system there, and it just depends on what school in Europe you want to attend. So it just. It's just all dependent upon which school in Europe, but those APs are going to be really important. If you're doing IB, of course, those IB scores don't come out until July and the scores, your acceptances in some of those European schools are score dependent. So you have to have those U.S. backups. So how many how many students do you have? Generally, do you try to have them focus on a particular country? if they're going to Europe? Or do you have students who are applying to Australia and are applying to (laughs) a school in Switzerland and they're applying to a school in the UK? Is that really common or do you try to get them to focus just for sanity? Oh, (laughs) that's a good question. (laughs) This year I had a student um, in California who applied to Canada, the UK and US. Um, She was... I'll tell you, she was really focused. She had a really good focus. Um, And it made my life sane. I also had another student who applied to the UK, the the American University in Paris Mm. in in the US. It was a little wonky, but it worked. Oh, and she applied to Switzerland. It was a little wonky, but it worked. 
Um, I haven't had many students. I, 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 I try and narrow the choices because it's a lot. It's a oh, lot yeah. to work with. Yeah. It's a lot to work with. You mentioned um, the American university system. And I think that's something that when we, when we talk to students, that is an option of an American or a, an English speaking uh, university system. Could you speak a little bit to what that is, the American university system? When I said the American university system, like the American university in Paris, it is English speaking. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Franklin University is, is English speaking. Um, the universities in Prague, that there's a whole consortium. Some of those are, some of those, the platform is in English. Some is in Czech. And when I was on that webinar this morning, I don't know if you both were on that webinar. Um, this morning it was through the, the global committee with um, IECA. It, you know, these kids have to be really independent, but, but that platform would definitely be in English. Um, you know, the, the, I mean, to learn the Czech language, you have to be brilliantly linguistic. Um, it's a lifetime on its own. It's a lifetime. <laughs> and you know, like we were talking about, to do a, a Spanish-based, um, to do a, a, a university in Spain and be feel like you were fluent. I mean, some students do a study abroad and, and do a Spanish-speaking platform. I think they may do that in a study abroad semester, possibly, and try it in that basis. I think that that would be a good way to do it after they've got a few years of college Spanish under their belts. What do you feel drives either students or families to want to study in another country versus in our home country? The students I've worked with have been pretty, um, either they've lived internationally or their parents have given them a lot of opportunity to see the world. If you were to say for, for students in the U.S. who are considering studying abroad, what are the major, and like you said, it's better to start early. I think we all, all know that, freshman or sophomore, if, you're, if that's a direction you're headed. But what are, if you were to say there were three key things that they needed to know, say, like had to do with deadlines or getting essays or testing, what are the three things they need to get in order as early as possible to go through the application process in Europe? Well, you said it, deadlines, their own curriculum, and they have to get, and sometimes I ask the parents to help me with this, if they need letters of recommendation from their counselor, Mm -hmm. um, because the letter of recommendation can be, particularly in the UK, a little bit different than our regular letter of recommendation here. What are some of the, and that's the nuance kind of thing that I'm, so, you know, we, we see letters of recommendation from U.S. high school counselors, and they're driven to provide very specific things. And what, what would be some of the nuances that a letter of recommendation to schools in the U.K. would want to see? Okay, so if, let's say you're going to, ma- let's say a student is going to major in, English literature, they'd want like a a very nice paragraph from the English teacher about the student's talent in English literature, but they'd also want little short three sentences from all of their, um, from all of their other content area teachers, and then a summary from their counselor. Now, the trick with that is that sometimes the counselor is responsible for two or 300 kids and may not know this student. So if that's the case, then I'll have the student choose a teacher if they can, and maybe it is that English teacher, to write this letter and submit it to the UCAS platform. Um, have, you, have you had um, counselors who have been reticent to change their format and, and provide those kinds of, you know, differences within the, the letter itself? Or are they pretty accepting when a student approaches them and say, says, you know, I'm applying to Europe. These are the kind of things I would really like that recommendation to have, almost like a brag sheet, but uh, almost a format sheet 
of this is the kind of recommendation that would really support me in my efforts. Do you find that embraced or do you find that? I have only had one teacher not willing to do it. And we worked around, I worked around it with the student and parent. I, I, I send a format, I send a template and an example to the school counselor. And then I always send a little gift to the student's counselor, thanking mm-hmm. Um, but I, I've only had one and my first one in, in the, however many years I've been doing this, I think I've been doing this since 2008. Um, and, um, and only one has said she wouldn't do it. Yeah. The counselors in the, in the U S are overworked and underpaid and, and yes. pushing the envelope already. And, and I think it's hard because I think they already feel bombarded probably with just regular guidance, like regular letters. And then they're like, wait a minute. Now you're telling me how I should format my letter. So, and I think for, for people, I guess for teachers like that, you know, helping them understand that, you know, this is something your student really wants. You know, we hope you can cooperate with us and, and provide, a, you know, what that system is looking for. And that's, right? yeah, I asked the parent to do an introduction first and say, well, well, it, well, Sandy will help you through this. And, and if you've never done this before, and then I had a teacher in, I had a student in New York and, and the counselor was like, I want to learn how to do this. I've yeah. never done this before. I really want to learn how to do this. And please, whatever you can give me, I am happy to do this. And, and we've been in touch on and off and the student had good results and she's thrilled. And I think it makes a lot of sense because the world is so global these days, right? And fortunately, these generations have the opportunity to study in different countries, you know, and and I feel like maybe we as people in education need to also adapt. Yes, yes. And they're, they're just, I mean, she was thrilled and, you know, everybody has been really happy. I had one glitch um, with a counselor who went missing and the deadline was looming. And she was like, well, I have till January 15th. And this was for the UK. And I'm like, no, I wanted this. You know, I, I, I was hoping it would be done before Thanksgiving. And it's like, no, you know, you just kind of have to you just kind of have to go with it. I think there are those for those of us who understand the huge pluses that are involved with studying abroad and learning something that is so culturally and personally life altering. Um, and especially at the age that we're talking about that 18 to 20, you know, two years old really changes the path of your life. And I think for those who understand that they'll do anything to help, you know, support a student to get to that point, much like the, the counselor that you were talking about. And um, I, I think that's one thing that if, if a student provides those who need to support them in that journey, that, like you say, that excitement, this is something they really want to do. I think everybody will want to get on board that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Plus, you know, counselors don't want to make parents angry. <laughs> no. That's, that's a great point. <laughs> that is a good point. I, you know, I, 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 I hope I'm not speaking out of turn. So you were also talking about, so obviously I didn't know that recs were different uh, for, for abroad, but um, can you talk a little bit about, because I know a lot of people obsess over the personal statement and essays here. Can you speak to a little bit about the differences that exist and how kids might have to tailor their writing? Yes, they, they talk about why they want to study that particular course. It's not a personal story about what they've overcome or... Our typical personal statement, it's about why this course, what they've done to achieve where they've gotten about why this particular course. So I'm curious and on that same, same point, um, as we know, asking a 17 or 18 year old, what do you want to do for the rest of your life is almost a disingenuous question, especially because what their answer is statistically, we're going to get it wrong. So we need them to probably answer that question in as authentic a way as possible. But what happens when you have a student who says, I don't want to study economics, but that's my fallout. That's my default. Um, how, do, how do they approach that? That's a really good question. I've never had a student say they didn't 
want to study that. I mean, that's that's their that's their focus. So the student, I'll I'll, I'll take the student from California. She's um, wanting to study politics and and economics in the UK, um, politics, philosophy, and econ. And that's something right now that's on her passion plate, I guess. Afterwards, she's either I'll continue my education, either in law or whatever, or I'll work for a nonprofit somewhere. And that's how she concludes that. Do you ever, ever discourage students who, who don't know exactly what they want to study from actually applying abroad? Because that might actually be something that is, is not going to work to their favor, especially in the application process? Yes and no. I, I, I'll steer them towards some of the liberal arts schools in, in the U.S. or some of the liberal arts options in Europe. Like perhaps, you know, depending upon what their profile looks like. Like one student who who this year she's going to Franklin, I think that that's a good spot for her. Or American University in Paris has got a liberal arts bent. And some of the UK universities um, have somewhat parroted our liberal arts, um, but you kind of have to point yourself at a particular major. But they've got this liberal arts umbrella. So I'll, I'll, I'll have them take a look at that and say, well, does this look good to you? And then oh, we, ahead, we, just open, we just open it up and then, then they somewhat explore. And hopefully they'll come to me early enough. They'll come to, as consultants, they'll come to us early enough so they can find it. Figure out there. So do most students not know their major when they come to you? If they're looking at something in Europe, they pretty much know what they want. And that's something you encourage. It makes if they it want to go if they want to go abroad. Yes, yes. You know, my very first abroad student was a, a student, and this is this seems to ring true for kids who are interested in art. Those these art kids really, it's a really good spot for them, particularly UK. So, in addition to, I guess, um, obviously the the opportunity to culturally grow, right, and personally grow in studying in a different country, are there any um, other reasons that families have come to you in terms of why their kids might want to study abroad? Like, I don't know exactly the price of uh, colleges in Europe, but are they more affordable than the U.S.? Um, they are because a lot of them are three years. So you're paying three years and then you can go on for a fourth year and get a master's in many instances. Um, And, you know, one comment I had from a parent was even for the price of going home, it would be less expensive than four years with the exception of certain schools in Europe, they can use their financial aid that works out for them. Do you find that uh, how, how, ma- how many of the students you work with, because it is a th- often a three-year program, how many of them actually continue on with a fourth year and leverage that, that additional rigor of the first three years? <laughs> I haven't had one do it yet. <laughs> oh, you haven't had one? Uh-uh. I was going to say it's a good deal. It's a great deal. I haven't had one do it yet. And that actually explains something to me because one of my uh, good friends from college, she came from Germany and she squeezed in her bachelor's in three and her master's in one uh, at Georgetown. And at the time I was like, how does she do that? But it sounds like if it's more of the norm there, then maybe it just was like she she knew that that was what she was going to do. Yeah. But no, that's a great value. It's, it's, it's great value. And, you know, we had, determined that we had determined halfway through our last contract in London that we were going to come home because our daughter was going to university and we wanted to be on the same continent as her. I was going to go get my um, ed psych in in London because it would only take me a year. I was going to get my master's, but then we came home instead and it would have taken me too long here. (laughs) Um, Too long and too much money. That that's true. So here's a question because I've definitely had students who've been interested. So is it still do you, do they find that their degree is as transferable or like um, it's as easy to find jobs when they come back here with a, a degree from there? 
These schools are becoming much more robust in their career services um, because they know that that is one of the biggest questions that parents are starting to ask. Um, might they have to work a little harder at it? Maybe, but it is transferable. I've, in working in science, I've run across this a number of times where, um, a matter of fact, I even know a married couple. One is from the U.S. and one is from Germany. And they both have two doctorates in the sciences. And when they were, when they were uh, having their, uh, one of their uh, weddings in Europe, um, on, on the cards, hers was not doctor. His was doctor, the, the signification. And <laughs> the reason why is because when she would say, well, you know, I have two doctorates. And they said, well, those aren't real doctorates. Because the difference between the two degrees, um, Europeans uh, have a different uh, calibration for um, the different levels of degrees. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that, and I've, I've seen that in a number of cases where the, well, that's not a real doctorate or that's not a real master's. And in science, uh, if you're trying to get a job, it's really not about that degree as much as what you can do and how quickly you can provide evidence of that. So in, in the cases where you've had students who have come back, have you ever heard that they've run into issues where their degree is uh, seen in a different light or it's misunderstood? No, I haven't, but I will tell you my, my dentist is from the Republic of Ireland. And when he came back with it, when he moved here, he did go to Michigan to buff up his dental degree. And wow. he is, Fully, he's not. He's he's my endodontist. He's not my dentist, dentist, but he's my endodontist, and he he did buff up his his degree a little bit from University of Michigan, and had to go jump through a few hoops. Um, so yeah, there are some, there are a few things, but I will tell you that probably the most prominent and well known autism researcher is from Cambridge who is Sasha Baron Cohn's cousin. Oh, no kidding. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> oh, go ahead. He's a PhD from Cambridge. So are you going to turn down a PhD from Cambridge? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, so I was going to say, like, um, do you feel like a lot, of, you know, is there a most popular major? You know, you talk about medical and I think it, it's it's shorter there, right, to do medical in Europe? It is shorter, but if you were to come back here, you'd have to jump through a bunch of hoops to get okay. a medical degree, you, to, to do medical here in the U.S., you'd have to, I, I believe, and don't quote me on this, you'd probably have to talk to somebody like David Forrester. Um, you'd have to redo your residency. You'd have to redo a bunch of exams, and it would cost you a little bit. Um, but yes, it is shorter there, unless you're going to specialize. I'm not a medical school expert at all. Yeah, and it's... So it's difference. There's a difference between depending on where you did your medical training overseas. Um, there's a review for every country is different, and yeah, every are, like you said, there are different hoops. Yeah, yeah, and you know, there's some talk about pre med overseas versus pre med here in the U.S. I'm not, I'm not sure it's a good idea to do pre med overseas or not, um, and, and that's that's something to research. Just because like the differences, right? The differences in, yeah. So yeah. I'm curious, we, uh, you know, there's the romantic version of what going to school in Europe is going to be like. And, you know, during the weekends, we're going to ski in the Alps and then we're going to, you know, <laughs> we're going to, it's only a, a couple minutes drive over here to, you know, have a, a fabulous dinner in, in Paris. And what is the reality? Do students spend their time on campus because the rigor and do they uh, find themselves not having quite the experience that they thought they were going to have? I think what students need to think about is, am I going for an academic experience or am I going to have 
a quote romantic experience. If they want to go and have a room uh, and, and <laughs> if I want to go and have a romantic experience then go throw a backpack on your back and go in, in, in whatever in, in camp. But if I want a different academic experience and we should talk about that academic experience in just a minute, um, then maybe no, because the academic experience is very different from our experience here in the U.S. The U.K. is filled with a ton of different societies, which are our extracurricular, and that's where their social life is going to come in. Okay. Um, and that's how they find their social group, and that's um, and who they know, which is also another way where they get their jobs and how they find their jobs. Um, but what they do on their weekends has to do with the societies they join and their extracurricular and that type of thing. As far as academics, it's so different from what we do here because they're only going to be studying, <clears throat> excuse me, three courses a semester as opposed to our five courses. And it doesn't look like they have a lot of homework. <laughs> But they've got a ton of reading, and it's very independent. And so they've got to learn how to pace themselves. And so when it comes up to the either the semester project or the end-of-the-year project and the end-of-the-year exam, they have to be very careful as not to cram in a bunch of reading and a bunch of end-of-the-year research or end-of-the-semester research. When I tell students, I say, the you know, you're used to being taught and taught by usually a teacher who has skin in the game and wants you to succeed. If you go to university in, in basically any place in the US, you are being professed to by a professor and they don't really care if you succeed or not, that's on you. So it sounds like if they go to Europe, that's a level above, not really, I provide material, you provide the answers. And, and that's- and in the U.S., you're going to hand your paper to a professor. And in some cases, in, the, in, in Europe, you're going to drop your paper off in a little paper slot, <laughs> not even give it to the professor. So, you know, they need to be prepared for that. And they need to be, be prepared for a different way of writing, a different way of being responded to. And it's not going to be, it's not going to be, as, it, it's going to be very straightforward. Blunt. <laughs> Yes. I like that you put it that way. I like that you put it that way too. I, <laughs> you put it in a great way. What are some? So, of the, you you said difference in writing, and I'm curious what what would be some of the, the some of the major differences? Is it difference in tone? Difference in application of knowledge? How what what would be some of the well, subtle changes? Well, I, I think both. It's going to be very academic writing, very. Um, it's going to be very academic. It's going to look very much, I don't know if you've ever seen an extended essay, mm-hmm. um, an international baccalaureate extended essay. It's going to be very much like that. Um, some schools often have um, writing workshop, um, pre-writing workshop, um, essay writing for students coming in from another country um, to show them how to write. Um, and the way, I mean, they don't expect U.S. kids and kids from other countries to write, you know, British spellings and whatnot. That's okay. Um, but it will be a different kind of essay research writing. That's Welcome probably, to- you know, with the hands-off approach, I feel like that's why AP classes are so important. Because I feel like a lot of the teachers here try to prep kids by saying, hey, here's all the reading. You know, I don't actually teach. Um, so go learn everything yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it sounds like that that makes sense in terms of that. And I, I think I'd also mentioned, like, I don't think Australia has is, a, is the same as Europe, but it was similar as a rude awakening to go from a private university, a medium private university in the U.S. to a large university abroad. And to feel so weird that I did not have access to my professors um, or for grades to be weighed so heavily in just one thing. Um, and that was definitely a rude awakening. Or to see, I, I, I shouldn't say you don't get one-on-one support because we had tutorials, mm-hmm. um, but to not actually have access to the professor was definitely a rude awakening mm-hmm. for someone studying abroad. <laughs> so that's where you studied abroad was Australia? Mm-hmm. I studied at Melbourne. Oh, you did? Oh. I did. Yeah, for a semester, but 
It was a doozy. <laughs> so many lessons learned while I was there. <laughs> Don't make assumptions. I feel like that is the most important thing I learned while I was there. Don't make assumptions. You should always ask. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So in the U.S., we have uh, our common application. And I know that there is a different version. They don't take necessarily a, a common application. But there is a version of that, especially for U.K. schools. Um, and can you speak a little bit to what that process is like and, and how it differs and how it's the same? Yes. Um, it, it, it's not this. I, I, I can't even think of what, what I really like about the U.K., which is called UCAS. And um, you can apply to five schools, and that's it. Even if they're on the common application, five schools. So, like, for example, I believe St. Andrews is on the common application, and that will leave you four schools for the UCAS application. You write one personal statement, one letter of recommendation, um, and you input... um, you can input like your AP classes or your IB classes. That's all you have to do. And you input your personal information, which, and that's what makes it similar to the common application. It's a much easier and much more transparent process because you know exactly um, where you stand. You know what AP, what SAT scores you need. If you don't have those, don't bother because there's really no wiggle room at all. Yep. I usually tell students just the facts. Just That's what facts. it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's your personal statement that will set you apart. Yeah. Um, I love that they cap it at five. Uh, well, and you mentioned, uh, Sandy, you mentioned, uh, so like one school that they could apply with it with a common application. One school would count, but then it's only four for UCAS. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they'll find you. (laughs) (laughs) And they have a plagiarism. They have some sort of plagiarism documentation and they'll find, they'll find out if you've plagiarized your personal statement. I, I don't know how they do it, but they do it. And I should say, like, I, because I had a student apply through UCAS, they have so many great resources, too, for students, I think, not from the UK in terms of how to write their personal statement. They literally have, like, a generator. You you answer the questions and it, like, generates something. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing that they tell you exactly what they're looking for. And you know what else? They'll pick up their phone. If you have a question and you call them, UCAS picks up their phone. No kidding. Yeah. I've heard of organizations that do that, but I thought they were like unicorns. No, no. And you you speak to a real person. Wow. That's really good to know. Yeah. 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 And And um, the time they're accurate in their responses. Even better. (laughs) (laughs) That's something we're not used to here in America. (laughs) Yeah. Both accurate answers and a phone um, getting picked up. So you would... um, Obviously, students, they might go back, but how often do students come home um, back to the U.S. when they're studying over there? I would say twice a year. A lot of times the parents will go over there in a normal year. They'll go <laughs> and see the kids. And why not? Who, who wouldn't? Exactly. That that's makes the, sense. Uh, that's the parental boondoggle. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, you can go to Europe because we'll visit. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Exactly. And it makes a lot of sense now why you were saying like the most important thing is to be independent because there are home from for probably much more than the average kid here is. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really have to know their major. And yeah, that that are there any other, I guess, qualities you would say are really important for kids to have to, to study abroad? You know, let me go through this list that these parents sent me. Um what would you say about having your young adult live abroad? It's been an exceptionally positive experience overall. I've seen huge advances in maturity, responsibility, and academic focus. In, an, in a personal, unscientific, and statistically insignificant poll of parents and students who went to U.S. schools either locally or out of state at the same time, the feedback has been very mixed compared to our experience. I am completely 
confident in his ability to travel internationally using planes, trains, and the London underground. <laughs> um, although he is surrounded by a supportive group of students at the university where he lives and has access to cafeteria dining most of the time. He has managed many things on his own for the first time, including a bank account, doctor's appointments, balancing extracurriculars and academic demands, food allergies, paying tuition, fees, <laughs> wow. etc. Um, I mean, had I known some of the stuff before he left, I would have Serious adulting. Yes. The university does not cater to you as a parent. Little communication. I received three total pieces of mail this year, each tuition payment reminder and no emails. I assume that any critical coordination is all happening directly with my student. student. Zero Mm -hmm. visibility into grades unless I ask my student. And then I really don't understand how grades work. So (laughs) he is passing at this point. Um, Know that there's significantly less flexibility in changing majors. And that's true for all of Europe. Um, No, that sounds amazing. So would you send students that need to do adulting too, in addition to students who are already on that path? Oh, (laughs) <laughs> or is there a difference there? And what a question to ask me. <laughs> I think if a student needs to do adulting, I'd probably ask them to do a gap year. Gap year in Europe. <laughs> and, and you know, post-COVID, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. And this stu- this particular student, one of the biggest challenges that he had was going to the pharmacy and he didn't know, and I'm, I'm, I'm adding this to my transition packet, he didn't know Tylenol, what the British word for Tylenol was, which is paracetamol. And it never occurred to me to tell him that. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about academic portions and the application portions. And I'm curious about a couple of more nuts and bolts things that you've run across since you've had enough kids go across and you've talked with them and find out, you know, oh, that's like you said, something I need to add to my packet. So what are some of the things that you've had students commonly get over to Europe and realize they should have packed or taken with them when they left? Oh my gosh. Um, one of the things I really want them to take with is if they're on any medication to take enough medication with them uh, to get them through until they're hooked up with their national health service and to understand that their medication may be a little bit different. Um, the other thing is a spare pair of glasses, uh, their specs, ah. and um, not to have any of those things shipped over to them because the duty on them would be just exorbitant. So the duty on glasses? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's exorbitant. So don't do that. Um, And, you know, their dorm rooms are really small. They're like little rabbit hutches. So just (laughs) pack small, just just pack teeny weeny. Um, I actually wrote a blog on that. And of course, nobody listened to me for this year for COVID, for even U.S. students, you know, pack two suitcases, get ready to get ready to evacuate. Yeah. Oh, that's true. And um, you don't need a lot. You just don't need a lot of stuff. Did you have any students who were overseas and either got stuck or had difficulty uh, getting back to the U.S.? No. Mm -hmm. No, I've got one student right now, and he just stayed. And you know what? He's going to be vaccinated before any other kids. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any particular experiences that that stick out in your mind that you kind of, when you look back and you go, I am so glad that this student had the opportunity to study in Europe. And I, I think we all get those those notes from students who say, I'm, I, I, this happened to me, and I'm so glad it did, um, that we're are very European, that wouldn't have happened in the U.S. Okay, I've got um, one kid from Durham who just, he embraced the societies, he was on the debate society, and he debated 
all over. And I think this is what catapulted, and we talked about him earlier, this is what catapulted him to law. And Mm -hmm. he debated all over the UK, Wales, Scotland, England, and he he just did a tremendous job. And who knew? Did they make fun of his accent? I don't know. (laughs) I I, I have no idea. That's one thing when I tell students and and (laughs) I speak Italian and if you speak Italian with a with a an English accent, um, it's not embraced the same way that when we have Europeans come to the U.S. and they speak, you know, English with an English accent or English with a you know a French accent. We think it's exotic. Right. Which, <laughs> and they make it. They think it's cringeworthy, don't they? They think it's cringeworthy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, no, and and he just. He just embraced everything there there was to embrace with his passion. And, you know, I encourage kids to join societies. If there's a society in your major, do that. And they'll have to experiment and that they should be sure to be there for their specific orientation. That's really important. Um, Speak to what, what, what is an orientation? It's, it's the same thing that we have here for freshmen um, that they'll call, you know, for freshmen. It's really important to do that. Very good. You know, freshman week or whatever they call it. Well, thank you so much for your time, Sandy. Oh, thank you. This, this has been so such cool. a blast learning about what you do and how you help your kids. This has been just, it's just been a pleasure. It really has been. It's, yeah, been, it's, it's been a lot of fun. The, I mean, there's so much more we can talk about. We could do this another day as well. Man. Yeah, this was definitely an area that we, ha- we Anna and I both wanted to speak with somebody who had experience in this because it's one that we, we, we run into uncommonly, but it's definitely one of those that somebody who does it on a regular basis, we knew there would be things we would learn as well. Well, um, I'm so glad you did. And I know we can always learn from each other. That's the point of our organization. Thanks for listening to College Admissions with Mark and Dana, where we make getting into college easy and fun. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and subscribe to get updated each time we release a new episode. Also, for more helpful college admissions information, visit our website at www.collegeadmissionspodcast.com.